I am Ken. And I'm Dee. And this is Antiques Freaks. The good podcast. One of many. <laughs> no, it's the one. What antiques are we talking about this week? Folding hand fans. Building on our advertising fans episode? Yeah, um, while I was looking into that, it turns out uh, hand fans are pretty fascinating in general. Hell yeah. So first, what is a hand fan? D, what is a hand fan? I was gonna say, that felt weird. Usually you ask me that. <laughs> Wikipedia defines it as any broad, flat surface that is waved back and forth to create an airflow. Well, they're not wrong. <laughs> it's that, that is like the pinnacle of, well, that's not incorrect. I guess that is the episode. So, um, thank so, you all for listening. Yeah, go home. And here is our Etsy. <laughs> So, going a little deeper, a hand fan is that, that fits in your hand, and is usually, but not always, a folding fan. Again, Wikipedia decided to get a little more specific. Shaped like a sector of a circle, and made of a thin material mounted on slats, which revolve around a pivot so it can be closed when not in use. A better definition. <laughs> Rigid fans are which is to say a fan that does not pivot and does not have multiple parts, is called a hand screen. Okay. Although it turns out there are just about 400,000 different kinds of fans and words for fans, so that is an extremely broad definition. Duly noted. No matter what, the folding fans have some basic parts, and I'm going to say them, otherwise if I keep talking it's going to get really confusing for everyone. There is the leaf, which is usually the largest part of the fan, the decorated part of the fan, and is either the paper or fabric that folds along the mechanics of the fan. And that leaf is almost always creased so that it compacts into a little package within the next part, the fan's montier, which includes the sticks, which are the sticks that hold it up, the ribs, which are the pieces that hold up the sticks, and the outside guards, which is what the fan folds into. A pivot anchors the bottom of the fan, which is also known as the head, and that makes up a fan. It's called a monteur for one interesting reason, which we'll get into in a second. It turns out when you define something as a thing that can be waved, human history. <laughs> it starts there. As soon as humans picked up things that they could wave, we invented fans. Folding fans were originally seen in the 2nd century BCE in China, where it later spread to Japan and from Japan spread to Europe through Portuguese traders. Ah, Portugal. Portugal, we've done it again. Before we get to the European obsession with fans, a quick note on early fans in Japan and China. They were and are still more in-depth in terms of like meaning and artistic note than fans here in the West. Like a fan in Japan could indicate rank, gender, class, career, religion. They're like necessary for Shinto priests. They are indispensable for many kinds of dancers, all kinds of formal theater. The military had fans, both fans for signaling and, literally, the Tessin, a folding fan with outer spokes made of heavy plates of iron, designed to look like a regular folding fan, that folded into a solid iron club or could be used to cut people. Alright, the not fucking around fan. Yeah, the not even remotely in the area of fucking around fan. You could also use it as a throwing weapon or a shield. Sure. Like the Kyoshi Warriors in Avatar The Last Airbender. Yeah, what they were doing is based on the Japanese fighting art of Tessen. It's cool as hell. I didn't know it was real. <laughs> so, they were adopted in the West by the 16th century. Uh, before that, traders were just kind of showing people fans and they were going, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great, Jeff. Do you have any spices? Yeah, I need salt. 
Excuse me. That that's great, Joao. <laughs> did you get to India yet? Joao, did you pick up any fucking nutmeg? <laughs> and then Joao threw a fan at them. Joao, we set you up for cinnamon, and you bring us this. <laughs> I feel like there's been a miscommunication, Joao. And then Joao starts vindictively fanning their cinnamon away. (laughs) I like this traitor character we've invented. Long-suffering Joao. (laughs) Long-suffering Joao. I like to think of him as, like, a very early club gay who's, like, just really trying to make fans happen. (laughs) So, like, not, not to rush ahead, but drag culture is actually listed as one of the important hallmarks of modern fan use. Hell yeah, it is. It is because of drag culture's roots in mocking the trappings of the upper class. And also because drag queens put on a lot of padding and then a lot of layers of clothing and then a lot of makeup and then go stand under club lights. So they get very warm and clubs are often not adequately ventilated or air conditioned. So they brought hand fans to the stage just to, you know, survive the experience of being on stage. And then everyone else in the club was like, oh, that's so fetch. Let's do it. And then everyone else was using fans when they didn't need them. You're like a gay Scarlett O'Hara. Like, <laughs> yeah, and it's just like, no, we're just very warm. Yeah, like the evolution of that was just like fans are important to have, you know, building off of that. If you're going to have a fan, why not have a big silly looking ostrich feather fan? Why not? To punctuate your performance. Which I think is really cool because that mimics the long history of the fan as a decorative and practical item. And I'm assuming also draws on burlesque culture? Yes, draws on burlesque culture, which draws on French culture. Ah, the French. Well, uh, burlesque draws on a million and one different like cultures of dancing, but I would say France is kind of like, it's sort of the place you think of when you go back to burlesque. Well... Burlesque being a French word helps, I think. You know, now now I sound really dumb. <laughs> like I was tr- I was tr- I was trying to to roll in all of the other influences that like have <laughs> that have built modern burlesque and sort of thrown French to the side of the road. Despite France, I think inventing burlesque. I don't know about inventing it, but certainly popularizing it enough in the English-speaking world to have just the word come over. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And it's interesting you should mention burlesque influencing drag and the use of fans as both a practical and attractive prop because the 16th century, when fans would start to take off, they took off in one country. Guess which one? France. It was France. Oh, hey, France. Yeah, France's continual rotation as in and out of the number one fashion spot in the world. For some reason, the French took to fans more than anyone else in Europe. And by the 18th century, their craftspeople were the fans to have. The only fans? Not the- I swear to God. I have a note on the side of my- I have a footnote that says, don't make an OnlyFans joke. A footnote that says, leave room for Ken to make the OnlyFans joke. <laughs> that must be what that note actually meant. <laughs> <laughs> and what would ultimately spread the European love of fans more than the French just absolutely kill in the game? The Edict of Nantes. Yes! Or, more specifically, the revocation of the Edict of Nantes. Dee, please explain to us all the Edict of Nantes. (laughs) We begin in France. Welcome to France. Ah, Paris. Uh Les baguettes, les scènes, les bridge of locks. Ah, oui, oui. (laughs) In France prior to 1598, the French Calvinists, referred to as the Huguenots, were not allowed to be French. Damn. 
They couldn't worship their religion or frankly admit that they were Huguenots anywhere or they'd get the shit kicked out of them. No one would do business with them. Your usual religious bullying. You have to claim your name is Hugo. (laughs) You can't not be a Hugo. No, he's a Huguenot. (laughs) In 1598, Henry IV signed Edict of Nantes, which allowed the Huguenots and other Protestants total religious freedom everywhere in France except for Paris, which was the stronghold of Catholicism. (laughs) And I always think that's funny. Hence the Notre Dame de Paris. The Notre Dame de Paris. Yeah, that, that's pretty much it. it. Was just Paris was seen as such a beautiful seat of Catholicism that tainting it with the Calvinists was unthinkable. <laughs> but this was like unprecedented. No country had done anything quite like this before. And the Huguenots prospered and they became an extremely important middle crafting class. So... Upper class is Catholic, lower class is Catholic, middle class Protestants. Yeah. Like a Protestant macaron. A delicious, creamy Protestant macaron. And that macaron is making pretty much all of the fans that exist in Europe right now. However, 1685, Henry XIV signed the Edict of Fontainebleau. Fontainebleau? The Edict of Fontainebleau was also called the Revocation of the Edict of Nantes. Now, did it revoke the Edict of Nantes? It sure did. He didn't like that some people in his country were not immediately and religiously and spiritually under his control. He had a vision of, like, perfect French autocracy, and he couldn't get that if there were Calvinists running around. So, he wanted total control of his country by making them all follow a religion which gave the Pope in Italy total control over them. (laughs) Which, the thing about Italy is that it isn't France. (laughs) It's it's something, isn't it? So it doesn't sound like it's a perfect French autocracy. <laughs> it sounds like you just really would rather be in Rome. I think a lot of kings at the time had this idea that, like, the Pope was like, sure, he's, like, technically the leader of the church, but they were all actually the leader of the church. Sure. You know, in their country. Sure, Jan. Or rather, Jean. <laughs> Jean. You make an excellent point, however, that is a stupid thing. How many times over would I be burned for heresy? Oh, in just this conversation, three. (laughs) Me twice for talking about the Huguenots deserving rights. (laughs) So, one of the consequences of the revocation of the Edict of Nantes was that, guess where all the craftspeople went? Away! Because they're all Protestant! (laughs) And have been for a couple hundred years now. So France now has no skilled craftspeople. (laughs) Which makes it pretty difficult to be France, I think. It's rough. You may know Louis XIV as a shit king that no one liked. (laughs) And this is one of the many, many reasons. So as a result, specifically with fans, and with actually a lot of crafts, but, you know, the one we're talking about now is fans, Mm -hmm. the craftspeople that fled France settled in other countries and started practicing, and everything practicing entails, which includes taking on students in other countries, England, Germany, I'm sure there's other ones out there, but Europe. (laughs) In the Europe, such as? In uh, the Europe, such as, yeah. Notably England. England would pick this up big time. So that's how France lost their cultural heritage. (laughs) And since fans had been established by France as a high, beautiful, like, fashion thing, people seized the opportunity to get them cheaper because they didn't have to be imported from France anymore. Uh Oh. Now, most countries had their own craftspeople. And from there, fans would just take off as first 
the highest of royalty accessories. And then, as the Huguenots dispersed across Europe, they became more accessible to the middle class. Eventually, we get to the Victorians, which made a muck of everything, like they always do. With their sickening whimsy? With their sickening whimsy. As you can imagine, the fan as an accessory took on new dimensions of douchebaggery in their hands. The Victorians are responsible for the concept of fan language. Which is fake and made up thing? You guessed correctly, it is fake and made up thing. Much like the language of flowers? Yeah, exactly. As we learned in our Language of Flowers episode. I'm blaming the Victorians, but it actually goes back farther. The Victorians, as they are wont to do, repeated these myths often enough that they became fact in everyone's mind. Again, much like the Language of Flowers. Much like the Language of Flowers, but its source is actually... One of the few times we actually have a myth with one solid source. An article in The Spectator by Joseph Addison, in which he capitalized on contemporary enthusiasm for fans and proposed a fan academy that would teach a fan language. Uh... So yeah, I am super sorry. There was no fan language. No. My intricate Regency romances, how could you? It's a real problem. I actually found a website that you've probably been on it before, actually. Knowing me and my habits. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. CandiceHearn.com Regency World. Yep, that's the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's the one every romance writer uses. <laughs> yeah, that's the one. Yeah, where she does talk about that. It skims over it because I don't think anyone wants to ruin the Regency writer's fun. What I did find really fascinating is that it is true in one area that I found. In the Philippines, there was a tradition of courting rituals with an abanico fan. So it was just like a popular accessory for fashionable women who were going a courting. And they used the fans as part of their flirting. When I read about it, it sounded much more sensible because it just seemed like the fans were an extension of body language, where, you know, averting your eyes and fanning faster suggested that you were annoyed with someone, as opposed to the extremely strange mythical fan language, which is like putting it on your ear and sliding it through your hand to say I hate you. I feel like one of these is a lot more fun, though. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. Like, no offense to the Philippines, but like... <laughs> Someone glaring at you and trying to fan you away is, like, not as romantic as basically fan sign language. Part of the reason they took off so much from looking at the 18th century onward is because they became an extension of art in general. Fans became canvases for painting, sculpting, assemblage, taxidermy, anything you could imagine. Now when you say taxidermy... Whole birds, my man. Whole birds. Ah... Like our dead birds on hats. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The fans of bird tails, mostly bird feathers. Those were rarer, but like the combination of like bird parts and bone struck me as like, that is taxidermy. Yeah, at that point, it kind of is the whole bird, isn't it? Yeah. They also worked their way into the fabric of socialization. And like, again, this isn't restricted to any kind of like specific century or era. This is like from them being popular onward, fans had just become like super important to the way people lived. There were fans that were theater programs, fans that were dance cards. Oh, that's handy. Yeah, they have special fans that had a pencil hanging in the middle of the guard. And you could write down your dance card on your fan while being coquettish and also staying actually cool. People would print menus, people would print... Like we mentioned in advertising fans, guides to social interaction, fun facts, trivia, games, steps to dances. 
Like, they just became integral to the way people interact. Just an entire Seventeen magazine in your folding fan. Exactly. Yeah, for real. It's amazing. Fan size and shape changed very frequently to mimic whatever fashion looked like. And one thing that I absolutely adored the idea of is that oftentimes when people were having dresses cut, they would reserve parts like scraps of the fabric to have a fan made to match their dress if they were especially fashionable. Eventually, fan use tapered off into the 1920s for one extremely funny reason. Flappers? Yes, flappers. What's specifically about flappers and what was fashionable to be seen doing as one? The Charleston? That's actually kind of a part of it, but more generally... Rouging your knees? Smoking and drinking. Oh, so if you have a cigarette in one hand and a drink in the other, where the fuck is your fan going? Exactly. (laughs) Culturally, people were just getting annoyed with having to have this goddamn thing on them. It's very hard to have a cigarette and a cocktail and a fan. And eventually, tapering off after becoming out of fashion in the 1920s, World War I happened and nobody felt joy anymore. And that killed the fan, except as advertising the one area where it did survive. And then drag? And then drag would bring back the beauty, grace, and fun of fans. Yay! Because they were hot. So warm. So warm is it to be a drag queen. (laughs) (laughs) Originally, I wanted to, like, point out all the different kinds of fans, but it's a list of roughly 24, so I'm not going to do that. Okay. I do like the forme ballon. Guess what that looks like? A balloon? Yes. The, the form ballon looks like a balloon. Because that's literally French for form of balloon. <laughs> Which is also my favorite Yu-Gi-Oh card. <laughs> and of particular interest to Ken, perhaps... The brise, which is actually a fan that only is formed of sticks and guards and held by a ribbon. There's no paper or vellum or folded element to it. Brise fans were the most popular and most fashionable during the Regency period. Oh. Which brings me to the next point. What the fans look like can help you determine the date very, very roughly. Like I said, brise style fans were most popular during the Regency period. And matching up some of the artistic decorations and materials used, you can kind of start getting an idea of where the fan comes from. Fans between 14 and 16 inches in length, which was considered extraordinarily large for an accessory, usually from the 1880s, to match the large, large skirts of dresses. Huge bustles. Big old bustles needed a big old fan. Every day we're bustling. (laughs) Sorry for bustle rocking. In the house tonight. (laughs) Yeah. Because I set myself on fire in your dance hall and everything got awkward. (laughs) And smaller fans, usually hand-sized or slightly larger, were becoming popular in the mid-1890s because bustles were starting to taper down. Dress reform! Other things you can do is to start by trying to figure out where the fan is from and you can look at the artwork on it. And that counts for Brise fans because the Brise fans are usually either pierced or carved. You know, there are English pastoral scenes That's probably from England. You don't say! (laughs) Uh, You'd be shocked. (laughs) Quel surprise! A fan that has the New York Crystal Palace on it? Well, that's American, baby. New York had a Crystal Palace? Yeah, it wasn't good. (laughs) But, like, for New Yorkers, it was pretty impressive. (laughs) (laughs) Shout out to our New York listeners. (laughs) (laughs) Olivia, I'm so sorry. In terms of value... A printed paper fan from the 18th century onward to, uh, we'll call it to the 1980s, actually. They can be more valuable than fine material objet d'art fans, art object fans, for those who don't speak 
me mangling French. That was really good pronunciation. Holy shit. Yeah, it's like I took three years of French class and then failed to actually retain anything. Maybe I retained that one. (laughs) Mostly because those words are basically English, but you still retained the accent. Yeah, because it's just object of art, but in a French (laughs) accent. Yeah, but it was a good French accent. (laughs) I blame the Normans. (laughs) Nice. But yeah, the printed paper fans tended to be more valuable just because they were made to be thrown away. These are like ones where, even going back to the like 1890s, you would have cheap wood and paper fans being given out at funerals to make to prevent people from fainting, and had the funeral home inscribed on the guards. Political parties ranging from forever to forever, and like every country, all of these things were just kind of given away for advertising purposes. Shout out to advertising fans. <laughs> and so lots of those would be more valuable than even like a gilded tortoiseshell fan. Because someone was meant to keep that thing. Ah. For some reason, French Revolution political propaganda, I say for some reason, like that's not like one of the hottest topics in historical like circles. French Revolution political propaganda turned up on folded fans very often. This is because of France's unique relationship with the folding fan. And they are extremely valuable, despite looking like shit. Whoa! A lot of them are just printed with, like, big boldface words, like the French version of Impact font. <laughs> I don't know what they say, because I don't speak French. I'll send them to you. Impact. <laughs> impact. How you say Impact font? <laughs> However, some fine materials will maintain their value up against anything, like handmade lace fans. Yeah, I'd say that's pretty fancy. It's extremely fancy. Handmade lace was an absurd luxury and very hard to keep intact, so if you find one that still looks like a fan, that's a lot of money in your pocket. Desirability and price also boils down to material of the fan. There's a lot of facets of the fan that are valuable if the leaves are made of lacquered wood, carved ivory, regular wood, resin, fucking celluloid, always a safe bet in the heat to have a <laughs> have a celluloid fan out. Oh, wait. Oh no, wait. (laughs) Yeah, I know. For those of you who are new to this podcast, celluloid is highly flammable and often spontaneously combusts, particularly (laughs) in high temperatures. Yeah, so that's what I want in the sun. Oh no. A fuse, essentially. Tortoise shell, especially tortoise shell from the hawkbill tortoise, turtle, sea turtle, which is now endangered. Thank you, France. (laughs) Silver, gold, I don't know that you need to be told that if something's made out of gold, it's valuable. But just in case, we're here for you. Just in case, silver and gold, yeah, those will stay valuable. And mother of pearl. Fan leaf materials vary from silk to cotton to satin to lace to decu to regular paper. Oh, decu is cut paper. Or parts of animals, especially feathers and tails. And hawkbill turtles. In general, the subject matter of the leaf of the fan, assuming it's a folding fan, will affect how much people like it. The rule is the weirder the better. Landscapes don't do so well as dance steps or a dance card just because the novelty is incredible. Also, any kind of embellishment. I found out that they had mica in the 1500s. Yeah. Amazing. It's ground glass, so that must have sucked for the people making it. But So any fan that has maintained an ancient mica... Sequin embellishments to catch the light, which were very common in the 1920s. Peak work, which is inlaying gold into tortoise shell or ivory. Sure! Yeah, gold is valuable. And inlays of precious and semi-precious stones. Materials can also kind of help you figure out age. After a certain point, roughly the 1890s, tortoise shells stopped being a material people used as often. 
and paper would take over by the 1900s over goat skin or kid skin or any other kind of stretched thin leather, which is what the high quality fans were made out of. From the 1890s to the 1920s is everyone's absolutely the most collectible fans of all time, mostly just because they are Art Nouveau and beautiful. One thing that I thought was really interested in is that you are not supposed to frame fans. No? No. If you frame a fan, that generally means that you're not going in and opening and closing it, and pretty much every part of it starts to break down. Oh, it needs to be in motion to be maintained. Yeah. Fan enthusiasts have said that the best way to display fans is to have, like, museum-style display drawers. So that you can get in and rotate the collection because oftentimes they do need downtime being stored folded. They're meant to be used. Okay. Apparently, a framed fan is considered de facto damaged. If someone's selling a framed fan, you have to assume that it is going to have issues refolding. And a lot of people frame fans to mask the fact that there is damage. If it can't refold, you put that sucker in a frame and she looks pretty again. Which I think is a nice way to combat that problem, but is an easy way to trick someone into buying a shitty fan. So yeah, rotate the fans in displays and generally store them in acid-free paper, tissue paper, folded neatly and wrapped and dry. And of course, the linchpin to all extremely valuable things is how likely was it to be destroyed in using it? Apparently, some of the holy grails are scrap fans. They would take blank white paper fans and just decoupage stuff onto it like a like a scrapbook. All like the combined methods of making this, which is like paper on paper using like wet glue, was detrimental to the existence of the fan. So when you find them, that's pretty hard to do. And that is my biggest fan. I'm sorry, was that a pun? Um, I mean, like kind of like it wasn't like a good one. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> My brain was not ready to parse humor of that caliber, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> it was not yeah. Yeah, it was not it was not ready for bad humor. Sources today include fancircleinternational.org, the whole fan dangly, nytimes.com, antiques the folded fan did more than cool, candishern.com, Regency World, Brise Fans, Jasper 52, a passionate wave to vintage fans. TheAntiquesAlmanic.com, keeping cool Victorian style. Victoriana.com, history of the fan. VintageDancer.com, Victorian hand fans. AntiqueTrader.com. These collectibles have fantastic stories to tell. <laughs> and CollectorsWeekly.com, slash accessories, slash hand fans. If you want to see and possibly buy some absolutely fantastic fans, <laughs> myhandfan.com is a wonderful gallery and sales place. Wow. You might say I am becoming fanatical. This is a new fantasy of mine. D. Yes. I'm going to need you to not. <laughs> <laughs> Are you not a fan? <sighs> <laughs> like to tell us to stop making fan puns you can email us directly at podcast at gmail.com or you can post in our facebook group antiques freaks friends or tag us on tumblr antiquesfreaks.tumblr.com air exhaustion was so real <laughs> or you can leave us a review in whichever app you're using to listen to this saying dear god please stop with the fan puns why are you doing this what have we done to deserve this mercy we beg of you mercy <laughs> 
We also have an Etsy shop at etsy.com slash shop slash antiques freaks, where we have a wide variety of vintage goods and t-shirts and stickers with the podcast logo on them. Soon. Clowns? Question mark? Yeah, I'm actually uh, editing the drop tonight. Excellent. If you would like to listen to deleted scenes and our ongoing audiobook presentation of the Penny Dreadful Varney the Vampire or the Feast of Blood, you can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash antiquesfreaks. Special shout out to our current patrons for paying our hosting fees and filling our hearts with love. And thank you in particular for listening. That's right, you. Au revoir. Goodbye.